This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in August of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Fred Kleeman is Associate Professor of Music at Tufts University. He's author of Hollywood Harmony, Musical Wonder and the Sound of Cinema. He says that film going is an intensely musical experience. And in a recent essay in the New York Times called How to Write Music for Rolling Boulders, he says that composing for movies often mischaracterizes auxiliary to the primary work of filmmaking is an art form in its own right. We're going to talk about and hear some film music today, including music of John Williams and other composers. Frank Lehman holds degrees from Brown University and Harvard University. As a music theorist, he's interested in how music works and what effects it has on its listeners. His research has explored a range of styles and repertoires, from 19th century symphonies to film scores and ambient albums. He's recently focused on composers John Williams and Hans Zimmer. And uh, you can find him at uh, franklieman.com, one of the places. Uh, Frank Lehman, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. So uh, fascinating. Uh, I think uh, so many of us love uh, film music, even, you know, apart from the movies. How did you uh, get into this? Well, I got into it very, very young. I think second grade would have been the time. Um, And I had a slightly unusual pathway into this repertoire um, in that, I wasn't interested in uh, as film music necessarily. I was just interested in this repertoire as music uh, by itself. And I um, got my hands on, well, I guess in that time, it would have been tape cassettes of performers like John Williams conducting excerpts from movie music. And I listened to this with the same sort of attitude that I would have listened to uh, classical music, which I was also really interested in with it at the time. So this, this formed this kind of unusual way of accessing this, uh, this large body of music from the 20th, now 21st century that took it seriously as music rather than something that was totally um, subordinate to a larger text like a movie. Um, and that's persisted with me through my entire life. I still listen to it in a somewhat strange, against-the-grain way. Uh, there, there has been, maybe still is, considered among some circles, a boundary, right? You got serious music and you got film music. You're, you're saying we shouldn't have that boundary. I, I think that is a, a kind of out of date attitude, and certainly some people still hold it. But more and more, I think um, there's an appreciation, including among the uh, classical music elitists, that the kind of composition that you find in film, um, starting right at the beginning of the inception of the art form and the, the beginning of the 20th century, um, you have composers like Camille Saint-Saëns, you know, a canonical classical composer writing the very first film score, setting up, you know, uh, a long legacy of complexity and deep thought and seriousness with which composers for multimedia always approach their projects. And true, sometimes it's hard to hear, you know, underneath sound effects. Sometimes it is manipulative in a way that perhaps uh, classical music or music by itself doesn't behave, but Aside from that, I think it's really worth appreciating um, for the the depth of craft that goes into it. I want to have you talk a little bit about uh, some of the themes in your book. Uh, We'll get into a little later this uh, wonderful uh, essay in the uh, New York Times. uh, Interactive, you got some great production work on that, and the the movies, uh, the music's embedded right in. I encourage people to go find that at the New York Times as we talk about it. But the book's called Hollywood Harmony, Musical Wonder and Sound of Cinema. And uh, talking about, uh, you know, 
quote-unquote serious composers moving over. I want to play a little piece from Eric uh, Korngold. Uh, this is, you know, a, a boy wonder um, in Europe who was uh, forced to flee the, the Nazis. And, uh, uh, for example, I love his opera, Die Tote Stadt, um, but became very well known for film music. Uh, so let's hear just a little bit uh, from, I think this is music for uh, the, the Seahawk. Errol Flynn movie, The Seahawk. Um, I, I noticed in your book you have a, I think you have a whole chapter on Korngold. Uh, what would you say about this? Well, uh, Korngold is one of my favorite composers, and he presents this interesting case of someone who started out entirely within the art music sphere. I mean, he was, a, as you say, a boy wonder, this wunderkind in Vienna at the turn of the 20th century, writing some of the most uh, uh, intricate and popular music of his day. The Toda Shot is one really great example. Um, and when he uh, first dabbled in Hollywood, it was pretty tentative. But the Anschluss, you know, what was happening in Central Europe at the time forced him and his family to flee to America, where his style really worked very well with what was already being established in Hollywood, this kind of romantic, heroic, orchestral um, mishmash. And Korngold was never completely comfortable with the fact that his career went from the very top of the the classical music hierarchy to what he and many at the time considered a kind of secondary or degraded art form being cinema, Um, which is not to say that the music that he wrote for those films, the Errol Flynn um, swashbucklers and all that stuff for Warner Brothers is not um, absolutely uh, impeccably scored. I mean, he was a complete master and those scores are some of the best that have ever been written. The Seahawk may be my personal favorite, but Everything from his relatively small filmography really repays listening and performing and analysis. And um, it's just a joy to hear what he did, even even if uh, he never considered himself to be completely fulfilled as an artist because he, uh, at the time, was considered going down a peg um, in in art form, from the concert hall and the opera house to cinemas. Uh, But imagine he had an effect on uh, other composers coming up. Well, that's quite right. Um, There's a series of albums that came out in the 1970s uh, conducted by Charles Gerhardt, who I think had a big impact on a lot of composers like John Williams. Um, there's this little revival of music from Korngold and Max Steiner, stuff that had kind of gone out of fashion, you know, in the 1950s and 60s when there was a move in American cinema to more popular song-based um, soundtracks. But these albums of the the big hits from Korngold and all these you know, big heroic romantic symphonic scores um, I believe those were in the ears of directors like Steven Spielberg and especially George Lucas. So it, when it came time to pick the, the musical idiom for something like Star Wars, it was Korngold that was the model that John Williams was working with, um, and some other composers, of course. But Korngold's bright, sparkling, brass-heavy, lyrical, chromatic, romantic style is 
very fitting to this sort of space opera that Williams would then lend his pen to. Uh, you say in your book that uh, you talk about harmony, especially chromaticism, uh, is emblematic of the quote-unquote film music sound. What uh, what are you talking about there? Well, uh, to put a complicated topic fairly simply, chromaticism is using as many, maybe all of the notes of the, uh, the, the chromatic scale, all 12 notes that you can see on a piano, white and black pitches, um, somewhat equally, and that creates a very enriched, sometimes a little ambiguous, sometimes a little bit uh, intoxicating musical quality that you don't see in a lot of other, I'd say, contemporary musical styles. You know, maybe uh, uh, film is the only place that we hear that really uh, robust and complex um, style of chromatic writing um, that's being con- written contemporarily for a large audience. And it can do a lot of things. One of the things is it ties the musical sound back to the the great um, classical romantic composers of the 19th century and early 20th century, Wagner, Liszt, Strauss, and so on. It also does a wonderful job in suggesting these unusual states, wonder or dreams or fantasy. And that, that works nicely with cinema. So a lot of film composers know their chromatic harmony really well. I'm not sure where uh, Bernard Herrmann fits in here, but I, I, he's one of my favorite composers, so uh, I just want to play some music and have you talk about mm. this. Um, I, yeah. I, cho- I chose, uh, you could choose anything. Um, I chose uh, some from The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, um, mm. uh, a romantic uh, uh, thriller. Uh, so here's some uh, Bernard Herrmann. So Bernard Herrmann, uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, him. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned that it's hard to know exactly where he fits, and I think that's that's quite apt because he's such an idiosyncratic composer. There's no one else in the history of film music or any other style that quite sounds like him. You always know that you're hearing Herrmann. Um, he has this, I don't know how to characterize it, dark and gothic romanticism, which is really instantly recognizable and a lot of i think the appeal of his scores you know especially for the the hitchcock films psycho vertigo north by northwest maybe what he's best known for um the the unique quality that makes a herman score a herman score is the orchestration that he treats the orchestra in this very distinctive way it may have something to do with the fact that he got his start not working for these big studio pictures with hundred piece orchestras but smaller scale radio shows and radio orchestras where he developed a sense for musical color. You can hear those harps and the, the bass clarinet in that excerpt that you just played, which 
uh, uh, really typifies his imagination when it comes to musical color and, and suits these thrillers and psychological um, uh, sort of portraits that he liked to score very well. Um, I was reading, uh, there's another piece you did uh, in the Washington Post uh, where you talk about leitmotif in the Star Wars uh, movies, John Williams, of course. I was very interested to see just a little uh, passing passage. Um, you said that one of uh, John Williamson's influences was Alfred Newman. Yeah, that's right. So Alfred Newman, I think, is uh, maybe a little bit less well-known in terms of his name, but everyone can hum at least one piece of his, which is the 20th Century Fox Fanfare. And he's a really significant figure, I think, in the, the classical Hollywood era. Um, he wrote fluently in every single idiom, had an amazing sense of harmony, and was adept at using this leitmotif technique, which is something that comes like a lot of movie uh, um, techniques. It comes out of 19th century drama, and specifically opera, where uh, a character or an idea or a symbol or a place may be associated with a particular musical theme or motif. These tend to be fairly short. Um, and this, this um, a very economical and symbolic style of writing music can... Um, generate long spans of, of uh, I guess you could call it musical prose, where one theme comes and then it chains with another, and pretty soon you have this very dense fabric of musical references and memories. And Williams, um, uh, who was very familiar with Newman's music, um, he, Williams came up in the studio system as a sort of an apprentice and was orchestrating and performing for all these uh, you know, masters of the golden age of Hollywood's um, uh, th that period. So he, he applied the leitmotif technique very intelligently with Star Wars, and it's maybe now one of the things that's most associated with that particular series. Uh, in that particular article, they, they link over, or you link over uh, to uh, some Newman music. I want to hear just a little bit of this. I don't know if we'll catch the leitmotif uh, exactly. Just play it from the beginning here, this little excerpt from The Song of Bernadette. This is music of, uh, of Alfred Newman. That's the very beginning of the scene, the, the first apparition mm -hmm. at, at, at Lord's. Um, so a little bit of, uh, we, we caught the actual film clip there with uh, the, mm -hmm. the score of Alfred Newman. Yeah, that, that's a particularly wonderful score. And it was quite popular in its day, um, maybe not so much anymore. But uh, Newman, he, he uh, could do this sort of spiritual revelation music, I think, better than pretty much any composer before or since. He also wrote the score for The Robe, these sort of religious, biblical, um, epic-type films, which are very popular mid-century. And you hear... Uh, Many, you know, it's a, it's a whole constellation of recurring musical ideas that you you get accustomed to over the course of that film. But the the biggie is the music that comes for uh, Bernadette's first uh, vision of of the Virgin Mary, and it's this luscious, practically Wagnerian music. It's it's very intense, almost um, sensual in quality, and it conveys the sort of love that um, Bernadette 
feels towards the, the, the divine, which is in similar terms that you would have almost for romantic or, or sexual love in a 19th century opera. It's that intense and that uh, full of feeling and uh, very, very uh, enjoyable on its own, too, I must say. That, that, that score works beautifully just as a, a pure musical experience. Uh, so your work lately is focused on John Williams, I think also Hans Zimmer. Uh, you mentioned Korn, Korngold is a favorite. Are there other favorites among film composers? Well, uh, I, I generally go to the movies um, listening primarily for the music. So I, 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 I know a lot more film music than sometimes I even have paid, paid attention to plots and narratives and characters and things like that. Um, and and uh, uh, across my experience, some of the other figures that I really have, have fallen in love with, I mean, Jerry Goldsmith, um, who is basically a contemporary of John Williams, more or less the same generation, although he, he passed away um, uh, in 2004, I want to say. And he did uh, some of the, the best um, genre movies of all time in the 1970s and 80s. So I think of Alien, I think of Poltergeist, The Omen, Star Trek, The Motion Picture, all these definitive science fiction and horror film scores, Planet of the Apes. All these were Jerry Goldsmith's efforts, and they're remarkable and very rigorously composed and enormously uh, enjoyable within sometimes the movies are not, they don't necessarily hold up that well, you know, but um, if you can detach the somewhat dated special effects or sometimes wooden dialogue or odd plot contrivances and just focus on the music. I think um, the Jerry Goldsmith filmography really repays listening closely. So that's just one example. I mean, there's a whole canon of film composers that, that we could go through here and everyone has something worth listening to, but I would make a, a special uh, plea to, to consider the music of Jerry Goldsmith. All right. Uh, by the way, if I were to go to the movies with you, would I look over and you'd have your eyes closed? What, are you just enjoying the music? <laughs> I, w- I would be very distracted. I find it a little bit difficult, especially in the first viewing of a movie. You know, I, I'll, I'll go a couple times to get more of a, a, a substantial experience. But I am going to be paying attention to the music. And if it's something that I have a particular research interest in, say a Zimmer or a Williams score, I might even be there taking notes um, or attempting to um, at least covertly transcribe in my mind's ear the flow of the melody so that later I can you know, go home and analyze it. Um, it that, that first experience, this is very strange. You know, this is a, a kind of a curse for a, a film musicologist like myself that you never quite have that, that uh, um, original experience that the average audience member would. But after the first time, I might try to sit back and immerse myself a little bit and have a, a slightly less, um, I don't know, uh, music-focused experience of the film. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to dive into this uh, essay from the uh, New York Times. Uh, it's titled, How to Write Music for Rolling Boulders. We're referring to John Williams and the Indiana Jones uh, franchise. And, uh, of course, we know uh, John Williams actually had to write music for <laughs> Rolling Boulders, right? <laughs> um, so, uh, and we'll hear some music as well, uh, more following this break. You're listening to Access U-Time, Tom Williams, and we're talking with Frank Lehman, Associate Professor of Music at Tufts University, author of Hollywood Harmony, uh, and a recent essay in the New York Times called How to Write Music for Rolling Boulders. He says that composing for movies, often mischaracterized as auxiliary to the primary work of filmmaking, is an art form in its own right. 
and he uh, studies, uh, especially the music of John Williams and Hans Zimmer. Um, before we jump into this, uh, tell me a little bit about Hans Zimmer. He, I, I know he's ubiquitous. Every other movie is scored by Hans Zimmer. Uh, what what makes Zimmer right. great? Well, uh, Zimmer, he, he has a, a very different model of composing than someone, I guess, a, a traditionalist like John Williams, who basically sits with the movie and a, uh, at his piano with a pen and a pad of paper and writes the cues uh, you know, uh, serially. Um, Zimmer works in a very collaborative environment and is able to take on a huge number of projects because he has an amazing amount of talent in, um, uh, at his disposal. And in one, in one way, maybe it leads to a certain homogeneity of sound. I mean, we'll grant that. But um, at the same time, Zimmer is very a self-reinventing kind of composer, and he likes to always um, give a new sound, a new approach to whatever project he's working on. Um, so there's always a there's a, a kind of um, I, don't know what I want to call it a gimmick gimmicky attitude, but um, uh, never content to rest on his musical laurels. Now, um, part of that means that he's very friendly to technology and the usage of electronics and or, or manipulation of acoustic instruments. So as a result, a especially nowadays, a Hans Zimmer score generally will not sound like a traditional symphony orchestra, but rather have sounds that are really unique to that soundtrack. They may, they may have been um, electronically altered or just produced by performers or in, instrumental techniques that we're not familiar with. I mean, I think of, of Dune, for example, which Zimmer will be scoring the, the, the sequel that's coming out, I think, maybe this year, um, where there's a whole host of unusual orchestrational and timbral choices that makes this uh, a particularly modern-sounding film score. I want to hear, I've queued up a little bit from Hans Zimmer. This is from Interstellar, and uh, this is uh, some music from the Cornfield Chase. Here's uh, some music mm-hmm. from uh, Hans Zimmer. Yeah, I kind of want to hear more of that. Um, that so I rec- yeah. recognize the strings. What's a, what, what, what's he orchestrating the the rest of that that kind of percussion sound to? Well, there's uh, there's a lot going on there. Um, probably more than can be picked up by ear alone, since so much of it is digitally post processed. But I think in the interstellar score, there's a, a hefty amount of electronics and synthesizers and organ pipe organ. That's the characteristic um, instrumental choice for that score, and. As is typical for Zimmer, there's a very kind of slow and minimal and cumulative impact of that particular track, the, the Cornfield Chase, where it starts out with a sort of subtle pattern that repeats, you know, just a couple chords that are easy to 
and train, easy to sort of wrap your mind around. And Zimmer will progressively expand the instrumentation, adding those electronics, adding those little um, uh, special effects, percussive and organ and so on. And pretty soon there's this um, overwhelming hypnotic and, for me, deeply emotional uh, resonance to that particular cue and a lot of the interstellar score that comes from this distinctive um, uh, uh, style of, of writing music for movies that is very unlike Williams. I mean, it's, uh, the Zimmer model is it's slower paced. There's a bit of a longer attention span, um, more economical and uh, perhaps limited in its musical vocabulary, but always to good effect. You know, it has this propulsive and very affecting quality as a, as a result. Yeah, I know what you mean about the emotion. I, I was feeling that as well as I was listening to that. Um, so let's let's turn to this uh, this uh, interesting piece in the New York Times, uh, "How to Write Music for Rolling Boulders," and uh, you you say in the piece that uh, film music doesn't always work in the way audiences think it does, and that some of the best, most complex musical compositions are written for scenes where they can barely be heard, and uh, I think that that does apply to the rolling boulder scene. Let let's let's hear this. Um, that this is the this is the actual scene. Uh, see if you can hear the music here. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I mean, what's front and center, of course, is the rolling boulder. And the visual is Indiana Jones, you know, trying to outrace it. Uh, tell me about the music here. Well, I think this is a good example of um, a degree of humility you need to have as a film composer, where um, for a scene like that, it's not really going to be about the music. It's going to be about that uh, wonderful uh, uh, cacophony of the, the the rock that's spinning out of control and in these narrow escape out of it. So Williams, understanding that his charge is basically to to write something that maybe just maybe might pierce the audience's consciousness and leave some sort of emotional imprint, just writes as loud as possible, right? In the most um, piercing and audible register of the trumpets, these are the loudest instruments at his disposal, and he hammers it away with this uh, double tonguing sort of series of of uh, um, uh, repeated notes that maybe have a, a, a slim chance of leaving some kind of mark on the the emotional tone of the the sequence. It's wonderful music, and it's wonderful music to hear on its own, which is an unusual experiment um, if you're used to seeing the scene with the, the soundtrack as it normally occurs, with the, the sound effects being present. So the, it, it does make a certain amount of musical sense. Um, Williams is. Uh, uh, Distinctive in that, in the fact that even when he's writing music that, that's going to be, in a sense, buried, that it still rewards re-listening. That he still approaches it very seriously and has all kinds of interesting melodic and rhythmic and motivic um, dimensions to it that that are not apparent on the surface of the music. But yeah, it's uh, it's quite typical of the series that um, very complex music needs to uh, take a back seat in, on occasion. Uh, so you write that um, you know there, that's a very obvious way that a score is "quote unquote" buried, but you say there's another sort of inaudibility uh, at play. What are you talking about there? Well, this is maybe a little bit more uh, psychological. The way that listeners and well, I should say filmgoers are trained from very early age um, unconsciously to, to to watch movies is 
well, with their their eyes, not with their ears so much. Um, and although most films, television, video games, any form of multimedia, music is almost a, a indispensable component. We don't often sit back and think about the the musical score actively. Um, it's supposed to be sort of working its effects on a purely subconscious level, and to pull it out and put it forefront at the forefront of the the, the film goer's experience. Sometimes it feels like a, you know. A, kind of an, an, a, a violation of the correct way to be immersed in a narrative um, film of some sort. And this, uh, I think that it's very explicable, right? We want to be invested in the movie and not constantly be taken out by considerations of, oh, this unusual chord progression just happened here. Oh, what, listen to that fantastic French horn solo and miss, you know, the, the, the things that are actually happening on screen. It makes total sense. But at the same time, this, this lack of autonomy can kind of you know, lead us to dismiss or underestimate just how wonderful and interesting and oftentimes sophisticated the music is that's going on underneath the surface. Uh, so in this piece, you have kind of a side-by-side. John Williams has uh, taken the, the, the music uh, that he calls uh, Scherzo for Motorcycle and Orchestra. I love that title. Um, this is a, a score he did for a scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, a motorcycle chase. And then he's he's I don't know what he did. He filled it out or, or or something for orchestra. Let's hear let's hear uh, both of these. We'll start with the uh, the movie uh, music. And so uh, now let's hear the the, the music uh, for the concert hall. Um, so this, uh, you know, it's the same music, right? Um, mm-hmm. but you experience it, of course, obviously a lot differently in the, in the two settings. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and part of, I, I think the appeal for Williams of performing these pieces, that was with the Berliner Philharmonic, you know, one of the, the premier orchestras of all time. And, um, they perform what was originally very virtuosic music for a Hollywood studio orchestra. And they take it to an even higher level of, of performative virtuosity. So it's sort of a thrill to, for Williams, I think, to hear his music performed by a uh, world-class orchestra and allow the audiences in that concert hall or on YouTube afterwards to appreciate the, the technical mastery of all the performers. You know, it's not about his music per se. It's really what the players are achieving. Um, and when you're writing a, a, a cue, particularly for something like that, a, a motorcycle chase, you're very um, rigidly bound by the action, right? If if there's a cut, you need to accom- accommodate that somehow with a musical gesture. If um, the pace of the, the scene changes, you need to change your tempo. It doesn't allow for a huge amount of musical flexibility, um, which is not to say, you know, a, a lot of that... It turns out to be a productive constraint. You know, creativity is spurred by having these limitations. But there's also something nice when you can extract the music, this 
uh, action set piece and turn it into a self-standing scherzo, as he called it, right? And maybe add a, a bit more of a, a, um, a convincing introduction and a satisfying conclusion. Since a lot of the time, those those beginnings and endings in film music are the least audible, the least interesting musically. They have to sort of phase in and out imperceptibly, so it's not to be disruptive. So part of the you know the, the art and you hear this in that scherzo for motorcycle and orchestra is giving the thing a nice rounded you know a bookend at the beginning and ending maybe fleshing out a few passages here and there but more or less it is the same music just heard in a very different way so in this piece in the new york times you ask a question so have we all been listening to movies the wrong way i'll, I'll pose that to you <laughs> well I, I, I suppose i was being a little provocative there but i do really think that um we could stand to gain a lot of appreciation and, and simple joy and pleasure from listening more uh, with more attention and intention to film music when we're in a theater or on our couch at night, not necessarily in the same way that you would at a symphony orchestra or you know, at a rock concert where your, your mind is really focused on what is happening on a purely musical level. I'm not saying go that far. Don't become me, in other words. But at the same time, you know, uh, the stuff where we have been taught to not pay attention to it and... I think that is ultimately to the music's detriment and maybe to the film's detriment as well. It's not as though when you're aware of a certain artistic layer of a film, that doesn't necessarily worsen the experience in any way. It only enhances it, enriches it to to be aware of the the compositional craft that's happening underneath the hood. I wonder if there's a line there. I'm I'm thinking, you know, of course you would, you wouldn't want to watch a movie without the film score. It's, it, it adds so much, um, and it, it's essential. But sometimes, you know, if I'm watching a movie and I'm thinking, oh, that score is so gorgeous, uh, maybe it pulls me out of the movie a little bit. Yeah, and, and sometimes that's not such a bad thing, is it? Especially if the movie is not, um, not uh, uh, worthy of the score that has been written. This is something that you get very used to in studying the, the, the history of, of film music that oftentimes some of the, the best scores are written for really shoddy movies that uh, there's something about maybe uh, a screenplay that doesn't have convincing characterization or maybe a, a plot twist that doesn't make sense at all or maybe performances that don't stand up to the test of time that composers, they approach us and say, oh, this is an opportunity. I, I can really compensate for all the other shortcomings I have here uh, that I'm noticing. And, well, can a, a, a great score save a bad movie? I'm not sure. But it can certainly make it a more tolerable experience if you can extract that music from whatever nonsense is happening on the, the, other, um, the other levels of the film. I was reading an interview you gave uh, about uh, the John Williams uh, Star Wars uh, scores. And um, you were talking about, I think these are the, uh, the prequels, some of the prequels, which uh, I think you, uh, along with many... I think you're not the greatest, <laughs> but but you were talking about how John Williams, uh, to your ear, is is trying to overcome some deficiencies in the in the screenplay with his music. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's right. Well, I, I don't want to rag too much on the prequels. I know that they have um, over the past couple of years. There's been a bit of a uh, <laughs> rehabilitation among some people of them, but there's an objective lack of convincingness, what shall we say, to some of the dialogue and some of the action, particularly in, in episode two, which is the you know, Attack of the Clones, which is love story between 
two characters, Anakin and Padme, that I'll say have very little screen chemistry, and the, the dialogue between them is absolutely tortured. It's unlistenable, in fact. Um, but the music is absolutely gorgeous. And I, I get the feeling that Williams, I mean, he's a smart guy, and he can tell when a performance is working, when it's not. He saw this, and he said, all right, I think the music is going to have to shoulder more than usual in making this a emotionally compelling kind of love story. So he writes this gorgeous theme. It's called Across the Stars, and he develops it very thoroughly over the course of the movie. It carries the film, absolutely, in a way that very few scores nowadays do. It's this lush, romantic, very hard-on-its-sleeve kind of um, musical, musical soundtrack. Does it ultimately... Um, the romance, I'm not so sure. But, and this is the perspective that I've increasingly come to, it makes for you know, a very powerful symphonic sort of standalone musical argument. You get this amazing love story for the ages of star-crossed lovers. Every, every nuance is conveyed in the musical soundtrack. And uh, if you can listen to it uh, uh, while sort of muting the dialogue that's kind of the the ideal situation i know that's not necessarily possible but we do have soundtrack albums and concert performances and all various means of um, understanding what was happening musically here too um without having to listen to the the grating stilted courtly dialogue between anakin and padme uh, well, let's uh, take another break. We'll come back, talk a little bit more about uh, the Readers of the Lost Ark series, and uh, talk a little bit more about Star Wars, and, and keep it on uh, on John Williams for a little bit here. Uh, we're talking with uh, Frank Lehman, Associate Professor of Music at Tufts University, author of the book Hollywood Harmony, and uh, this essay in the New York Times we've been talking about called How to Write Music for Rolling Boulders. We're talking about film music on the program. We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached the uh, the last segment, about uh, nine minutes left in this conversation. Frank Lehman is with us. He's Associate Professor of Music at Tufts University, author of the book Hollywood Harmony, Musical Wonder and the Sound of Cinema, and uh, writes a lot of articles. You can go find those, uh, link to those from uh, franklehman.com. Um, one of those that caught our eye was a recent essay in the New York Times called How to Write Music for Rolling Boulders. It's the music of John Williams for the Indiana Jones uh, franchise. Uh, so I think one more, uh, one more thing I'd like to talk about about this uh, essay, um, you talk about a lot of interesting techniques that uh, John Williams uses. One of those you say could, could be uh, easily derided if it's used inartfully, uh, Mickey Mousing. What is this? <laughs> Right. Well, as the title suggests, this is a kind of cartoony approach to accompanying the moving image. And originally, this term Mickey Mousing was meant in a derogatory way, as uh, as though a composer for live action, you know, a feature film, was writing everything as in in a way that would be more suitable to a Bugs Bunny cartoon. You know, uh, there's a a character going down the stairs, there may be a descending scale. If they're going up in a hot air balloon, there may be an ascending, you know, fruit trail or something like that. Very literal-minded, very precise, very difficult to write good Mickey Mousing, even if it doesn't, you know, uh, take its subject matter seriously. The the, the um, technical skill involved in getting the timings and the musical gestures right is very high. 
But in any case, uh, uh, it's not a style that's particularly in favor um, these days. It had its sort of golden age back in the 1930s and 40s. And, of course, it works beautifully in, in animation um, for, for Warner Brothers cartoons. Tom and Jerry, uh, great composers like Scott Bradley uh, uh, who, or Carl Stalling, who were able to, to make this um, way of approaching musical material that's extremely fast-changing and elusive and, and responsive to the image. In their hands, it sounds like ballet. It's, it's incredible what, what um, the, the old uh, practitioners were able to achieve. Not so much practice to this, to this uh, day anymore. Uh, it feels very old-fashioned and kind of cheesy, um, but it has a place, it does still, and that's in um, kind of throwback action movies where perhaps there is a good reason to suggest that a musical punch aligns with a, a, a sharp chord or um, a failed escape gets a drooping uh, plummet in the trombones or something like that. So you don't hear it that often. And when it is applied, it's usually in a more subtle or maybe slightly less Bugs Bunny um, uh, sensibility. But there, there is still a place for Mickey Mouse. Well, let's hear a little bit of this. Uh, here's from... Um... Let's see, Indiana Jones this is from Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, and uh, the fist fight that we all remember from the, from the movie. An example of Mickey Mousing. Let's hear this. So uh, yeah, you can hear that the the the, the music uh, emphasizes the you know the swings of the wrench and the and the punches. That's right. And just to, to reemphasize, this is very difficult music to write, especially prior to, you know, 1990s or so when digital um, technology becomes so easy uh, in, to synchronize things with. Um, it all had to be done with a stopwatch and you know, very precisely measuring out what 16th notes would occur at what beat and how that corresponds to the, the exact on-screen action. So to write music like that is... is challenging to write good music is really takes a, a master. And I think this is what distinguishes John Williams, um, puts him in rare, rare company when it comes to this old fashioned style of movie scoring in that he can write music for these fistfights, which on one hand, it absolutely follows the action to a T, right? It, it, it adjusts itself. It's spontaneous. It's unpredictable. And yet it also has to it a kind of musical coherence. There's a sense of, balanced phrases and one musical thought leading inevitably to the other. Um, that's, I think, a very tall order. It's not something that Williams always achieves or strives for. Sometimes it's just more uh, um, you know, following the action without necessarily worrying, worrying about musical implications. But there are occasions, and the, the Indiana Jones series provides many of them, of this beautifully melodic, artful, and hyper-precise style of Mickey Mousing. I want to turn briefly to um, Star Wars. Uh, you've written a lot about uh, Star Wars. In fact, you've uh, compiled, a, is it a catalog of light motifs from uh, John Williams' yes. music in, in Star Wars? Um, so let's let's just hear something. This will be an excuse for us to hear some gorgeous music <laughs> from, uh, from Star Wars. Here's a bit of the Imperial March from The Empire Strikes Back. Music of John Williams.
Yeah, as always, I'd love to hear more of that. And that's from the concert hall, or at least the recording, Gustavo Dudamel leading the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Some of this music is has made its way to the concert stage. Yeah, and it's a very reliable um, second encore for John Williams' concerts. Uh, he still performs regularly, and uh, it's always a surprise, well, unless you are very familiar with his planning for the program, that, oh, are we going to hear the Imperial March? Are we going to hear the Imperial March? And then it then we get it right at the end. Um, he's ready to, to go to bed. He loves the piece. He seems to be quite proud of it. And for good reason. I mean, talk about an iconic villain theme. It's never been done better. Um, funnily enough, the, the first movie, Star Wars 1977, that didn't have a real theme for Darth Vader. I mean, there's this kind of runty little imperial motif that you could uh, very easily not even remember. And it was only in the second movie in the franchise, Empire Strikes Back, where he thought, okay, this is the biggest baddie in movie history. I need to write something that's, that, 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 that rises to his level of memorability. And thus, the Imperial March is born, and it's been with us ever since. Oh, we just have a couple minutes left. Um, I've got this queued up, so I'll, I'll just I'll just play it. Um, you can say whatever you want about this. This is uh, Howard Shore. Uh, this is from the end of the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy, um, and of course, you know, with all these uh, epics, uh, the, the music is so important here. Let's let's just hear a little bit of Howard Shore's music. And boy, I want to play more of that, but we, we're running out of time. Um, it's How can so, you cut it's, that short? yeah, it's so gorgeous. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe your twenty seconds on that. Well, I mean, Howard Shore, another uh, master composer, and a very lucky man in that he was given this wonderful canvas in the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Hobbit trilogy afterwards to to get musical breathing room. It's something that's so rare in contemporary Hollywood, and yet. Here we have this canvas of three massive scores full of amazing themes and the uh, emotional <laughs> sort of cumulative impact after those three long movies towards the end of Return of the King. It's, um, it's unspeakably moving. The, the musical conclusion, it's like a, a, a three-night opera experience or a three-night symphony experience. That, that's how potent the musical narrative, the musical storytelling that you get in, in Howard Shore is. Well, we'll uh, have to leave it there. Uh, very enjoyable. Thank you, uh, Frank Lehman, Associate Professor of Music at Tufts University, author of Hollywood Harmony and uh, many essays and pieces, including the recent for New York Times, How to Write Music for Rolling Boulders. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Thomas. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening uh, today. Time again for Utah StoryCorps, everyday people sharing their stories at the StoryCorps recording booth in Logan. My name is Michelle Bonner. My name is Sharon Larson. That's my daughter. I think you've had most people in this valley insured or have them insured. I can't think of a, a store that we've gone into or anything where you don't see someone that you know or that knows you. 
Yep. I was in uh, the grocery store on Saturday, and this guy came up. He was in one of those go-karts. He said, oh, there's my insurance agent. He said, I didn't have a car right now, but I, as soon as I get my car, I'll be back and let you insure it for me. Can you tell me, like, how you got into being an insurance agent? When did that all start? Well, like I said, it's been 50 years ago, and I worked for this gentleman. And this other guy up the street, there was an agent. He said, you need to get an insurance license and get your own business going. So we went to Salt Lake, and I took my exam, and I passed the first time. And that was the start of it. You told me something about your license. What's your insurance license number? 262. And if I were to go get an insurance license today, my number would be like... There's six to eight digits now to be an insurance agent. (laughs) So it was kind of early days. I loved every minute of it. Yeah, you wouldn't change it, would you? Nope. (laughs) I'm two weeks into retirement, and I'm not sure I like it yet. (laughs) No? Very different for me. You never thought you were going to retire, did you? (laughs) No one of my customers looked at me one day and said, are you going to die in that chair? So I figured Paul Mortuary come and get me right there at the back door. I look forward to going to work because there was people there that depended on me. I try to look after my customers. That's the least you can do for them to trust the, your, their business, their cars, their everything with you. You need to look after them. Wow. I'm remembering as a child coming into your office and you had mountains of papers on your desk, an inbox and an outbox, and I could barely see you there. So when you first started writing insurance, you were actually writing insurance. And you've had customers that have been with you the entire 50 years. Pretty much, yeah. My farmers especially. I had a lot of farm business. I remember as a kid driving around with you to go take photographs at the farms with the Polaroid camera, and the picture would come out the bottom. So that was on weekends. You were always um, working, right? Well, the insurance companies always want a picture of what they were insuring and the condition of what they were insuring. And, you know, if it didn't look up to them, then they would turn it down and not let you insure it. Mm, So that's why you had to have those. So just thinking about going out to see those farms reminds me of, again, joining you as a kid to go to Salt Lake City to the fancy Hilton Hotel. And it was for... National Farmers Union Convention. Yeah. As a kid, what I'm remembering is a sea of cowboy hats. Yep. And then one really well-dressed lady walking down there in her high heels. What was it like being one of the few working women in that industry at the time? It was a challenge. They didn't like to accept women in that day and age. We certainly have had to fight our way to the top. You just didn't belong because that was a man's business. And they just figured that we need to stay home and take care of the baby and change the diapers. And you did that too, though, didn't you? Yes, I did. We're recording this conversation this one day after um, Mother's Day to acknowledge you and to say thank you on behalf of all of us, as your kids and your customers. Every person you've helped, you know, thanks for looking out for everyone with the ferocity that you have over all these years. And this is Utah StoryCorps. Thank you for coming along. See you next Friday, same time, same place. Support for Logan StoryCorps comes from Cache County and from USU Credit Union, a division of Golden West.